Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I must also say Ramadan Mubarak. I am fasting and so my uh, my voice may not be as silky smooth as it normally is. Don't have the water and the warm tea that I normally do. But we are continuing on with our discussion of the making of the modern Middle East, which includes the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And to discuss that, we have to go through World War One. So, brief recap of where we are so far. In 1908, the Young Turks came to power in the Ottoman Empire. The Young Turks, they turned to Germany as an ally. But in 1914, war breaks out in Europe with, with Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire on one side and Britain, France, and Russia on the other side. Eventually, the Ottoman Empire, as allies of Germany, they enter the war in mid to late 1914. Meanwhile, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener becomes the uh, Britain's Secretary of War. He has made a reputation for himself as a great soldier in the Middle East, and he thinks he knows the Middle East, and he thinks he knows Islam better than he actually does. However, Kitchener is now the British Secretary of War, and he has his own plans for Arabia after the Ottomans are ultimately defeated because none of the European powers are really taking the Ottomans all this seriously. Most of their focus is on Germany. Kitchener, his plan for Arabia after the Ottomans are defeated is to create an Arab caliph that would be basically a British puppet, and he begins to reach out to a man named uh, Hussein ibn Ali, who was the Ottoman governor of Mecca or the Sharif of Mecca. However, British India, which is a very important department within the British Empire, does not like Kitchener's idea at all. In late 1914 and early 1915, the Ottomans, they suffer two very serious defeats in their first forays into the war. And these defeats automatically put the Ottoman Empire at a severe disadvantage in the war. However, these offensive attacks, because they were offensive, there was the Ottoman Empire attacking the Russians and the British first. These offensive attacks, they forced the British to reconsider their strategy toward the Ottomans. Their whole idea was to just wait out the Ottomans until the Germans were defeated and then focus on the Ottomans. But now that the Ottomans had uh, struck first, they decide that they have to take the war to the Ottomans as well. And so the British decide, and the other allies, they decide to invade the Dardanelles Strait. And from there, they will then be able to move on to Istanbul, the Ottoman capital, and bring and get the Ottomans out of the war quickly and hopefully find a backdoor to uh, surround and flank the Germans. So the British and, the, and their allies, they began to uh, invade the Dardanelles Strait. And during the beginning of the campaign, things are looking pretty good for the British as they're making pretty good headway onto the Dardanelles Strait. And we're going to pick up from there. And so now, and so now Russia, they are happy about Britain, Britain, at first at least, they were happy about Britain's invasion of the Dardanelles. But when it seems to be looking like the British are going to be doing pretty good, Russia starts to get worried and they decide to stake a claim 
to Istanbul and to the Straits. That is the Strait of Dardanelles and the Bosphorus Strait. These are two important small water causeways that the Russians really needed for access to the Mediterranean Sea. But now with Britain making some headway and some very rapid advances on the Dardanelles Strait, Russia is getting worried that Britain would capture Istanbul and claim it for themselves and Russia would be left out in the cold with nothing. So this starts to bring up old fears within Russia and Britain. Russia and Britain had been opponents. Well, not right now, during World War I, they are on the same side. But before this, they had been opponents for many years during what was known as the Great Game, when these two empires were trying to gobble up as much global territory as possible. And this was also concerning to Russia because if uh, Britain got control of Istanbul, this would put Britain very, very close to Russian territory. So Russia sends a message demanding that Britain and France recognize its claims over Istanbul and the Straits. Now, mind you now, no one has even come close to capturing Istanbul, but these guys are already trying to divide up the spoils of war. Now, the thing is that neither Britain nor France, neither of them really want to upset the Russians. They both need the Russians. And we explained the strategy, I believe, in the previous episode. But the uh, Germans were fighting on a two front war. They were fighting the British and the French to the to the west and the Russians to the east. And all parties were kind of locked into a deadlock with a bunch of uh, trenches and and heavy artillery and people killing each other in large quantities just to gain a few yards of territory. So both sides were locked into the stalemate, but the Russians were feeling the most pain. The Britain, Britain and France on one side, they were kind of, they were suffering a, a heck of a lot also, as were the Germans for that matter. But the the Russians were really feeling it bad and they were probably, probably pretty close to collapse. And, the French and the British, the last thing they wanted was for Russia to pull out of the war. They did not want Russia to make its own peace with Germany, allowing Germany to put all of its power and all of its focus on its Western, on the Western front, on its Western conflict. I mean, if they were holding, if they were able to hold back all three powers, Russia, Britain and France by themselves. Imagine what Germany could do now if they only had to focus on Britain and France. You can just imagine how scared Britain and France were if that were to happen. So Britain and France, they needed Russia to stay in the war and divide the Germans' focus up until the end of the war. And at the same time, however, while they needed Russia to stay in the war, they also didn't want Russia getting too strong in the Middle East. Neither Britain or France, because they both had their own desires for the Middle East, neither of them wanted Russia getting too much territory down there either. So they kind of have uh, two different uh, conflicts of interest playing against each other. Well, I guess they have a conflict of interest. They want to appease the Russians, but at the same time, they don't want to give the Russians bust so much. And I kind of I find it kind of interesting that in all this discussion, nobody's talking about dividing up Germany. Everyone's talking about dividing up the Ottomans, but no one's talking about dividing up Germany. Kind of kind of shows us something on. Now, eventually, Germany was divided in World War II. We got to give them that. But at this point in time, no one's concerned. But they just want to defeat Germany. They don't want to conquer and divide it up between them. 
Anyhow, moving on. Eventually, however, the British and the French, they, they really need Russia for the, the immediate concern, which is fighting off the Germans. And so they ultimately cave to Russia's demands. And as you mentioned, Russia was really suffering in this war. And Britain and France did not want Russia to make its own peace with Germany and allow Germany to put all of its focus on the British and the French. So a man named uh, Sir Edward Gray, he was the British Foreign Secretary. He really wanted to um, appease the Russians. And so he went on ahead and and caved in to what the Russians wanted and confirmed that they would have first dibs at Istanbul and the Straits and the region around there. So he was really giving the Russians quite a bit. And the French also reluctantly, very reluctantly, agreed to the same thing as well. But Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, he wanted to keep this whole agreement secret. And so these three powers, they agreed to give the um, the Russians Istanbul and the Straits of Dardanelles and the Straits and the Bosporus Straits. They agreed to give all these things to the Russians, but they had to keep things secret because the British didn't want the Muslims living in India to find out. And that was because they didn't want to be seen as collaborating against the last remaining Muslim power in the world. And so Sir Edward Gray, he tried to come up with some way to appease the Muslim world. Uh, He once again didn't want Britain to be seen as destroying the last remaining Muslim power in the world. And so he decided to set up a committee to try to find out what the British are going to do inside of the Middle East and what they can do to appease the Muslim world. Sir Edward Gray, he did want to make it clear that none of the allies would occupy nor invade the holy cities of Mecca and Medina and pretty much all of the allied parties, the uh, French, British and the Russians, they all agreed to that because once again, none of them really wanted it. Uh, They just saw Mecca and Medina as being two very hot desert cities. Nobody at that time knew about the vast oil reserves in Arabia at that time. Perhaps if they had known about it, things might have been different, but they did not. And so on April 8th, 1915, the British Prime Minister created a committee to advise on to advise to advise the British government what they should do in the Middle East. And this committee was made up of various different representatives from different departments within the British Empire. This included the Foreign Office, which was where Edward Grey was in charge. Also, the Admiralty or the Navy, which is where Sir Winston Churchill was involved. Also, British India, the War Department, which is where uh, Herbert Horatio Kitchener was involved, and several other departments. So this committee was made up of representatives from all these different departments. It was called the Debunson Committee, after the man who the prime minister put in charge of it. And their whole goal was to try to figure out, what are we going to do with the Middle East? What are the British going to do with the Middle East? The thing is that the British had every desire to conquer as much of the Middle East as possible by at this point in time. At the beginning of the war, the British weren't really all that certain about taking parts of the Middle East. They weren't really sure about expanding their hold further than what they already had. They really just wanted to keep the the road clear to India. That's the main thing. They wanted to protect British India. That was their prized possession. And so they wanted to keep the Middle East secure for that reason. 
but they weren't really concerned necessarily about taking parts of the Middle East and expanding their already vast global empire. But now things are changing. The, now that the Russians were staking their claim to Istanbul and the French had made it pretty clear that they wanted Syria, Britain was starting to come around and say, well, if these guys are grabbing parts of the empire, we might as well grab parts of it for ourselves too. And so now all these different departments within the British government and most British politicians, they were agreed on this path. They were now united in the decision to dismantle the Ottoman Empire and take as much as they could. The British prime minister and all these other politicians, these guys had united on this re on this course of action only because Russia had had made that demand and made it clear that they wanted Istanbul when this whole thing was said and done. And so finally, even though they disagreed on the course of action, Lord Kitchener and British India, the, the uh, governor of British India, they were agreed on this part as well. Kitchener, he wanted to create a land corridor, basically connecting the Mediterranean Sea and British India. So he ultimately wanted to, his idea was to create this secure area cutting across the Middle East, going from the Mediterranean Sea over land, not over sea, over land, all the way through to British India and making it easy for British to sit to ship tr troops and goods back and forth overland by train from the Mediterranean Sea to British India. The uh, British India also wanted the same thing. They just didn't like uh, Herbert Horatio Kitchener's idea of establishing or creating a British controlled Arab Caliphate in the Hejaz. And Kitchener really still wanted to do that. He wanted to create an Arab Caliphate. In the Hejaz, that was essentially a British puppet. Allah knows best how that would have turned out if that had actually gone through. Allah knows best. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. Anyway, so the British India was not were not the only ones who disagreed with Kitchener's Arab Caliphate idea. There were others who also disagreed with it. Most of the politicians in London they did want to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. But they preferred to just create a bunch of small, weak Arab states that would be under Britain's protection that they can control. But they really wanted, wanted to stay out of Muslim religious affairs. They saw a, an Arab caliphate as a religious thing, and they wanted, wanted to stay out of that. The War Department they wanted to keep Turkey nice and strong, and they wanted they wanted to keep Turkey nice and strong. But they wanted to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. So they wanted to keep what we now know of as Turkey or the Anatol or Anatolia. They wanted to keep that part strong and to act as a buffer and as something to protect British territory from Russians, Russia's advances. And they were also concerned about Russia having too much control in that area. They weren't really focused on the Arab Caliphate. They, they wanted to keep Turkey rather strong. They just wanted to break up the, the uh, overall Ottoman Empire. British India, as I mentioned, they didn't like this whole Arab Caliphate idea in the first place. They thought Kitchener was foolish and dangerous and even thinking about this whole thing. They really didn't want to upset the Muslim in, the Muslims living in India. So that's why the Brit British India didn't want to go that route. But at the end of the day, Kitchener's reputation and his stature 
pretty much won everybody over. He, as a secretary of war, he had the political strength to kind of do what he wanted. His reputation as a soldier and as a legend of the Middle East, all these Middle East and East and Eastern conflicts had made him, uh, gave him a lot of social credibility, and that allowed him to pretty much impose his will. And so even though all these other departments disagreed with his plans, they weren't willing to overrule his plans. And so it is along this way that one of the earliest mentions or occasions that Zionism begins to enter the conversation because now the British had made up their mind that they are going to go ahead and dismantle the Ottoman Empire. They are going to have to turn parts of the Middle East into essentially colonies. And so they start, and so now Zionism begins to enter the picture. And to be clear, I know there's lots of rhetoric about Zionism. The basic understanding is that Zionism that we're going to go with with right now is that Zionism is the belief in the creation of a Jewish homeland. We're going to leave it at that without getting into all the flame wars and all the arguments back and forth that we know the emotional things that we know that term can bring to many people. So we're going to just leave it at that basic understanding for now. And with that being said, I'm about to get into some more thorny territory. The British government, the, all these various British departments, they didn't really know what to do with Palestine, this region known as Palestine. At the time, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, but they, the British suspected and expected to defeat the Ottomans, and eventually they will have to come to some sort of decision about what they're going to do with this region. Some British politicians, they wanted Palestine to act as a buffer state between French Syria, because once again, they expected the French to get Syria and the British controlled Suez Canal. So some of them wanted Palestine to act as a buffer between those two areas. But there were no local rulers within Palestine that they could prop up, that the British could support in their fight against the Ottomans. So there were no local nobles or rulers or, or ruling families that the British could really work with to help them create an independent Palestine, so to speak. Some people within some British politicians did consider the idea of creating a Jewish state, which is where Zionism com comes in. But at this time, they didn't really think it was possible. While there were many Jews living in this region of Palestine, most of them were concentrated in the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, Jews were actually a majority in, Jeru in Jerusalem, but in the rest of Palestine, they were not really significant whatsoever. The rest of Palestine, the rest of that region was mostly Arab and Muslim. And of course, there were many um, Arab, Arab Christians as well. And so with this small population of Jews mostly concentrated in Jerusalem, the uh, British didn't really think it was possible to make this small Jewish population rulers over the entire area. And we're going to come back to that. But this now brings us to another interesting individual named, named uh, Sir Mark Sykes. And, and uh, we'll see what role he plays on. He plays in this whole conflict in the future. But Mark Sykes, he was from a noble family, grew up in a very wealthy family. He had once been elected to the British House of Commons in 1911. 
His uh, father was much older than his mother, and their marriage wasn't too happy. His mother had converted to Roman Catholicism when Mark Sykes was three years old, and so he became a Catholic also. When his father died, he inherited lots of land and property, but despite all this wealth and property that he had, he really didn't stay home very much. And so before he got involved in politics, he traveled extensively throughout um, the Middle East and much of what we now consider as part of the Ottoman Empire. And in early 1915, he started working for the British War Office in London. His job, based on his experience in the Middle East, was to prepare pamphlets about the Mediterranean region for the soldiers heading in that direction. And so while working in the War Department in early 1915, he met an old friend from school who also happened to be a Catholic. And this friend of his also happened to be the director of military intelligence. And so with this close connection, of course, the old boy, boys club rules came into effect and Mark Sykes's career began to skyrocket. So within a few months of working at the war office, he was asked to join the Debunson Committee. And as we mentioned earlier, this committee, the Debunson Committee, its goal was to advise the British government on what to do with the Middle East. And so Mark Sykes, having been uh, promoted by military intelligence, which was in fact loyal to Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, Sykes essentially found himself on this committee as a mouthpiece for Lord Kitchener. Even though the two hardly ever met, he was basically expressing the ideas and desires of Kitchener on this committee that was to advise the British government on what to do with the, with the Middle East when they eventually took it away from the Ottoman Empire. Another thing about Sykes is that he was the only one on this committee who had actually spent a lot of time in the Ottoman Empire. As we mentioned, he had traveled through it extensively as a young man. And so with his experience and, and firsthand knowledge of the Ottoman Empire and with him being seen as the representative of Lord Kitchener, this gave Sykes a lot of credibility and a lot of emphasis on this committee. And so when he spoke, people presumed that he was speaking for Lord Kitchener. And so even though Sykes had only been in the War Department for a few months, his opinions were taken very, very seriously. And so Sykes promoted this idea that there were only really four options for the British regarding the Ottoman Empire. Their options were these four. The Allies could basically break up the entire empire and annex various parts of the empire. So the, the Russians would get Istanbul and the Straits, the French would get Syria, the British would get Egypt and the Suez, and so forth and so on. And so they would just have to break up the whole Ottoman Empire. The second option was to divide the empire into different spheres of influence where the allies would have limited control and, and limited direct influence, but they could still kind of watch over it. So these would be basically autonomous states, basically, but they would still be heavily indebted and heavily under control and protected by the various allies. The third option was to leave the Ottoman Empire as it was, but weaken it to the point that it was submissive and harmless and couldn't really really be a threat to anyone any further. 
And the fourth option was to break up the empire into semi-autonomous states that were still loosely connected to the empire and loosely connected to each other, but they were not united or strong enough to be a threat. And so it was that final option that they ultimately came up with, that they ultimately decided to go with because this was the easiest one. Break up the empire into lots of smaller semi-autonomous states that were loosely connected. But once again, not so connected they could be a threat and that they could um, pose a threat to the Western powers. And so with this plan in mind, this committee that Mark Sykes was pretty much running as the mouthpiece for Lord Kitchener, they began to just redraw the boundaries of the Ottoman Empire. They just, they just basically ignored whatever the Ottoman Empire had before and decided to just create their own boundaries and borders within the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, so you understand, they did have what, was what we now call a vilayet, though in Arabic is wilaya. They had a wilaya system in the empire that divided their empire into various different provinces. The wilaya is basically a province or a small governance, governance area. So Hijaz was a wilaya. Um, Damascus was a wilaya. Um, Lebanon was a wilaya. So they had all these different wilayas and regions of their own, but the, the British just ignored all of that. They ignored their own, so that's, that whole system that the Ottomans had already had in place for centuries, and the uh, British just started drawing their own lines in the sand of what they thought things should be. The British also ignored the local names for these areas. These names had their own Arabic and local names that they had for centuries also, and they decided to give them their own names. And these names were based on Greek and Roman names from the British upbringing, as, of course, all these British politicians on this committee, they grew up learning about classical Greece and and uh, classical Greek and classical Hellenistic terms and Roman terms and all that. So they gave these new um, nations that they were creating, basically, these, these new states that they were creating on paper, they gave them names that they were familiar with from their upbringing. And so that's how we get names such as Mesopotamia and Syria and Jordan and Armenia and Anatolia and Jazeera, Iraq, and also Palestine. Now, before we wrap up, let me just explain the whole thing about Palestine. I'm sure if you've ever followed the whole Israel-Palestine conflict, you've heard those who are anti-Palestinian or pro-Israel, however they want to put it, you've heard them say that there's no such thing as Palestine. There never was a nation called Palestine, so forth and so on. And to a certain extent, that is that is correct. During the Ottoman Empire, the... Um, Palestine was not an individual um, wilaya. There was no wilaya of Palestine during the Ottoman Empire. That doesn't mean Palestine did not exist. That's also, they, they are really obfuscating and covering up some things when they say there was never a Palestine. Palestine did exist. The people did call it Palestine or Philistine in Arabic. It did exist, but it was more of a region. It wasn't necessarily a... Um, a border, basically, or an actual territory with lines drawn in it during the uh, Ottoman time. During, during the Ottoman era, it wasn't really a, a colony or a wilaya or a province or a state called Palestine. It was a region, and they did call it Palestine, well, Philistine in Arabic. So 
it's true an independent autonomous state called Philistine did not exist, but a region known as Philistine did exist and had been called Philistine for centuries. It is similar to how in the United States we might call, for instance, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is a good is a good example. There's no region, there's no boundary of what is exactly Silicon Valley. There's no state or city or county known as, or legal jurisdiction known as Silicon Valley. It's a region of several cities um, around San Francisco, San Jose, and that area in California that we know of as Silicon Valley. And when people say Silicon Valley, you know exactly what part of the country they're talking about. Same thing with Philistine. Only things Philistine have been, while Silicon Valley, that term is only about maybe 20, 30 years old, the term Philistine was thousands of years old. <laughs> so for people to say that there was no country for Phili- named Philistine or Palestine, this is many times they're telling the truth, but they're telling a lie at the same time. So be that as it may, uh, the British started redrawing all these new states and they gave them these names. And Palestine was one of the names that the British gave uh, to this future state that they expected to create. So we're going to stop here for the moment. And inshallah, we will continue in the next episode with the Ottoman storyline. And in the next episode, we're going to discuss the we're going to continue on to the British invasion of the Dardanelles Strait and see how the British did there. Before we wrap up, I want to just uh, make a few announcements. I want to first thank my listeners on Podbean. There are lots of people who listen to this podcast on Podbean and I Podbean and I get your emails. Uh, whenever you leave a comment, I get the emails for it. And I, I want to respond, but I forgot my login to Podbean and I haven't really sat down to figure it out how to reset my password. I, I can do it. Believe me, I can, but I just haven't got around to it. Forgive me, but thank you, um, brothers and sisters, those of you on Podbean who are leaving your comments. I do appreciate it and I thank you for it. And I do see it. It comes to my email whenever you do that. So one more thing before we wrap up, I want to let you know, and uh, a lot of people ask me about the... Um, the continuation of the Caliphate storyline. As you know, we ended it off with the with the um, Battle of Karbala, the death of Hussein ibn Ali, the son of Ali ibn Abi Talib. And then we uh, started off with the beginning of the revolution by led by Ibn Zubair. And I stopped there, then we went on to another, other various other topics as we are in right now. And many, many people have asked me, when am I going back to that? Well, I'm going back to it now, but it's going back. I'm doing it on the uh, Islamic History Exclusive, which is for Patreon subscribers. Um, I have a different plan for this, for these free episodes. So uh, we're going to continue, continue with the Ottomans. I have other plans on this part. But if you are interested in hearing the story of Ibn Zubair and his war against the Umayyad Caliphate, Feel free to become a uh, a Patreon a Patreon subscriber. You can hear the story then. First episode was released today, and inshallah, I will have a few clips, a few minutes of that clip for you available right after this episode is over. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
So the people of Medina, they definitely want to join Ibn Zubair. However, Ibn Zubair, who is in Mecca, he has not formally declared himself as caliph and he has not formally openly announced his his revolt against Yazid ibn Muawiyah and the Umayyad. So since Ibn Zubair doesn't accept their their um their leadership, the people of Medina, they elect a man named Abdullah ibn Hanzala as their governor. Now this this Sahaba, he is a Sahaba now. This man, Abdullah ibn Hanzala, he is the son of a man named Hanzala ibn Abi Amir. And I don't think we spoke about him during the Sita podcast, but his story is fairly popular. You may have heard of it. Hanzala ibn Abi Amir, he was a Sahaba who died during the Battle of Uhud. However, he died after when he died, he had only recently married and had only recently spent the night with his wife. As soon as he heard the call for the battle, the call for jihad, the call for the battle of Ahud, he left his wife without making ghusl and he went and joined the battle. And he died while he was in battle. And the Prophet said that he saw the angels were washing him after he was killed. And so this man, Abdullah ibn Hanzala, he was the result of that very brief marriage between his father, Hanzala ibn Amir, and his mother. And so the people of Medina, they deposed the Umayyad governor and they choose Abdullah ibn Hanzala, who is a say, who is a companion and a son of a companion. They choose him as their leader and they begin to besiege the Umayyads who were living in Medina. The Umayyads, as we mentioned, they were now holed up in Marwan ibn al-Hakam's home. Marwan ibn al-Hakam and his son Abdul Malik ibn ibn Marwan were both there. Abdul Malik, who we spoke about briefly in the last episode of season three, Abdul Malik, he wrote a letter to Damascus informing Yazid ibn Muawiyah of the situation where the Umayyads were essentially under siege and fearing for their lives in Medina. When Yazid ibn Muawiyah, when he hears about this, he sends an army of 12,000 led by a man named Muslim ibn Uqba ibn Nafi. Muslim ibn Uqba is an older man. He's also very sick at the time, but he has been loyal to the Umayyad cause. He was from the Ghotafan tribe and he had fought for Muawiyah at the Battle of Safin. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.